0: Jeff, All right, leave. well, good morning, everybody. Sorry I'm running late. Um, we already had a stress fracture. Just a um, couple things real quick. Uh, of course, obviously, the Bible conference starts today. Glad you guys are here. Thanks for coming up. Good to be here. Good to have to see you again. How's things going down there? Good. Yeah. You're going well? Good. Good. feels like home. What's that? I think mean, it feels like home. Oh. Well, that's good. Just to be here. Now you can move back. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it's good to have the, the, um, uh, the West here again to visit with us. Uh, good to start. have our Bible conference started. So that starts really today. So we'll start assembling right after main service is concluded. Um, just as a reminder, we have to clean the church on October 16th, that weekend, whatever that works out to be as far as whether we do it on Friday night or Saturday or whatever. Um, just want to mention do please pray for Kevin Thompson. Um, I think most everybody knows Kevin, Kevin, uh, another sister passed away yesterday. So uh, I think her name was Priscilla. So uh, that's a couple of sisters in, in a month, month and a half time frame. Uh, so pray for his, uh, his mom as well. The whole family, they just need your prayers and comfort. Um, also pray for the Arnie's I don't have an update on Gwaine but uh, uh, I also don't have a negative report either so that's good so as far as I know things are going well for the for for Gawain. I haven't I need to check in with the Balkans see how they're doing and uh, we miss missing Bud Cross he came for a while then he hasn't been here anybody know anything about Bud okay uh, and then Desiree I saw Desiree this morning she's running the check-in but uh, her report was good I think everybody's aware of that. So she's still got some other things going on, but just we continue to pray for her. And then to mention is the harvest party is October 23rd. And if you are interested in running a booth or manning a booth or creating a booth or whatever, being a part of that, see um, Mitch, or no, actually, I think it was run by Chris Cohen. So see, well, either one of those guys, they can direct you and get you going. Uh, so that's going on. And then there's some other things that, I won't, that I've had in, in an email, but I don't have that with me so i don't know what all those were but anyway that's okay there's a lot of stuff in the bulletin will keep you going and as a reminder of things that are happening so for the sake of time uh, why don't we turn over to the book of Psalms, chapter 124 we'll read there then we'll go into prayer um, and then we'll get into the lesson psalm 124 it's a it's got eight verses so we'll read through those and And we'll take a turn praying. Okay, Psalm 124, starting verse 1 says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, now may Israel say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quickly when their wrath was kindled against us. Then the, wet, the waters had overwhelmed us, the stream and the, had, had gone over our soul. Uh, then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us a prey to their teeth, as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird from out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who had, who made heaven and earth let's pray father in heaven lord thank you for this passage what a reminder lord that it is you who cares for us it's you who takes care of us it is you that protects us and we thank you for all of those things lord if it had not been for the lord who would have been on our side what a statement that we get each one of us make i'm sure uh and we praise you for that father do want to pray for uh dorothy and and kevin thompson lord uh the loss of another family member and just a, short, such a quick short time don't know what the problem was or what the what the reason was for her passing but lord i pray for that family lord that you would comfort them uh and let them know lord that you you're right there you have wrapped your arms around them and you care for them and uh lord it's important that they know that you're there and we pray for them pray uh for the bible conference lord the, the things that need to be done the uh the work that is going to be done pray all of us would stay safe uh, and that uh, we'd be able to get the work out uh, on time and complete everything that we need to complete this this week we thank you for the opportunity to serve you and we just praise you jesus name amen we can conclude in prayer. Again, we just thank you for who you are and what that represents to us in our life. We do praise you, Lord, uh, that you protect us from uh, things that have that wash over us, Lord, that try to, try to drown us in in, uh, in the complexities of life. We praise you, Lord, that you uh, you have not given us as a prey to others uh, that they may devour us in, in one way or another. We thank you for those things. We give you the, the honor and the praise and the glory for taking care of us we ask you to be with us this morning, now, where we, as we continue our study in the book of Second Corinthians. We love you. and We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so that's where we're going to be at this morning. We're going to. This would really be a kind of a part two to the chapter, um, and uh, it's a good study that we're that we're involved in right now in this, in this chapter in particular, all, all the way through so far in the first five verses, first, first five chapters. So last week. And just a reminder, we began to look at where we gain confidence and strength in our labors for the Lord as we face whatever comes our way in our life. Now, Paul has been using uh, his own personal life as an uh, example, as a testimonial of the things that are going on, uh, has been going on with him. So for the several prior chapters, Paul had encouraged the church at Corinth and, in that, and, right, and by that it encourages us as well. Uh, as to why he ministers and teaches and why he does it with such a passion uh, You know, some people just they, they they go through the process of laboring in a ministry because they think that's what they have to do But we need to move from what we have to do to what I need to do and then change our our motivation from a have to to a passion to want to and that's really what Paul's using his life as an example what what motivated him to passionately endure the things that comes his way so that he can continue to serve. What, what motivated him to do that? And so he's, he's used his life as an example, and he laid out in his chapter some really cool things. So this chapter starts out pointing out how we can draw strength and motivation from, from, it's really interesting, he's really, in this chapter, he's pointing out doctrinal truths, and the doctrinal truths that he points out strengthen him, and they should strengthen us as well. Uh, they they help motivate Paul. Why why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he willing to endure, sacrifice his life if necessary, to accomplish the gospel being spread? And he uses these these doctrines in this chapter as as the the rationale for him. Um, now he knew that his tormentors they sought his death. He knew that they, he knew that he was basically he had a target on his back. Uh, all the time, people were trying to trying to track him down, trying to execute him, kill him. Uh, from the moment uh, that he was actually uh, saved, all the way until even the present time when he wrote this letter, uh, that has been his. That has been what he's been enduring. His life has been that. And so he knew the tormentors wanted wanted his. They sought his death, and he was almost all day, every day, he was threatened with bodily harm and injury in some way. Yet that didn't stop him from serving. He's uh, okay you imagine getting up in the morning and saying, okay, well, one of coming at me today, it's okay, God's got my back. And he just keeps going. And that's where we should all be. So, uh, now Paul, I said, I said this last week too, Is he's not looking for self-pity. Instead, he's offering you and me the encouragement that we need to stand face-to-face against any trial that comes to try to stop us from serving. And so from the opening verses of chapter 1, if we just flip over to chapter 1, we just remind ourselves of a couple of things. Chapter One, Second Corinthians, Chapter One, verses, uh, well, verse four. Uh, we'll start with that. Paul says this, talking about God who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in, which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith ourselves are comforted. That's in a great statement. What Paul is saying here, the thing, what comforted me, I can take that and help comfort somebody else. That was part of his ministry was making sure that that was. That was relayed from God to to people, and then in verse eight, just a few verses later, he says, "For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came upon came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we were dis, we despaired even of life." And so he's like, you know, I know I know what's happening. I'm, I'm not ignorant of what the trouble is that we're facing. I know what's going on. I know what's happening. We're pressed out of measure. Uh, that, that, uh, that sometimes we do despair of life but I know that God's got me back and he's in the recovered so we've seen him walk us through several reasons uh, for being involved in ministry starting back in chapter 3 just as a reminder uh, he told us in chapter 3 that, that God considered us sufficient to serve and he's made us able to serve he's given us the ability to serve so, so with that Paul is, he goes into this, this chapter what he wants all the believers to know is that we actually have nothing to fear about serving in ministry. Uh, nothing to fear. Now, we kind of use the example of, you know, going door to door, but, you know, you don't, have nothing, you don't have anything to fear in any kind of ministry. Even if even if it's if somebody says, hey, I, I need you to give a devotion, in, you know, for the volleyball team. Uh, some people just panic about the giving a devotion. Don't fear that. Don't fear that. I mean, you got the word. You just, you're just sharing the word with people. So don't fear that. God said, well, Paul is telling us there's nothing to fear about serving in ministry because we have truth and support of what we're trying to do. So uh, so strength in our ministry is important to Paul. And it should be important to all of us. Where do we draw our strength? So chapter 5, we're encouraged by uh, what I actually I, looks like four specific doctrinal truths, very important doctrinal truths, four of them in this chapter alone, that give us strength and confidence to engage in ministry. And uh, so you've seen some of the difficulties of Paul's ministry, but we've also seen valuable truths that he personally uses to strengthen himself. And so I've got, uh, I've got four of them. I think I listed them in the handout there with you. In verses, which we looked at last week, verses 1 to 8, is what I just called our future is set. So we know, what, we know what our future looks like. We know what it is. We know where we're going, right? So our future is set. That would be what I would call the doctrine of the future state of the believer. What is the future state of the believer? It's in verses 1 to 8. We looked at it last week. I'll, I'll kind of summarize all of that here in a few minutes. But then later on in verses 9 to 13, we have another doctrine, the evaluation of our service. The you know, you're going to be evaluated in your service. And what we call that, that ask guy has a name. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. But don't fear the judgment seat of Christ. It's a good thing because it's an evaluation. Uh, you know, I I'm not a big proponent of uh job Job-based uh, evaluations of the employer, the employees. I don't like them. I don't like being evaluated. I don't like doing evaluations. But God's going to evaluate us in our ministries. He's going to do it at the judgment seat of Christ, and that is motivation for how we serve, because we want to be evaluated well. And so then in verses 15 to 17, just a few short verses there, what what I call the vastness of the finished work of Christ on the cross, the vastness. He how how spread how how much. How much the finished work of Christ impacted the entirety of the world? And then in the last few verses, verses 18 to 21, is the, is the doctrine of the call to the role of ministry. The doctrine of your call. So God, God has called us. He's given us some specific things in that last passage there. So so having all of this confidence that we're talking about in, in doctrine, it motivates our labor. Trying to serve the Lord but not knowing His word is kind of disheartening if you're trying to serve God but you don't, know, you don't know the Bible, you kind of get disheartened and you kind of like you check out you, you, you give up and so uh, it renders the servant incapable of carrying out their master's command. If you don't know what God wants us to do and what he has said, how do we serve him in the proper way? That's what, that's what I'm talking about. And so Paul gives us um, a spring of confidence to serve Christ by taking us through these important doctrines uh, now there are many people, and this is—we'll talk about doctrine for just a moment here. There's many people, including pastors of some churches, who think that doctrine is decisive—or I'm sorry, not decisive, but it is decisive. But they think it's divisive; it causes division. It's really a shame. Um, they basically think that we should—we ought to basically move through our Christian experience from one feeling to another and forget doctrine. Just go on your gut. Just go on your feelings. Just go on what makes you happy. Just go on what, what uh, the, the, your influence from a culture should tell you that, that you do. Uh, so they go as far as to claim that we shouldn't be determining propositional truths and defining them as dogma or doctrine. In fact, they don't even like the word doctrine. The word doctrine makes some, makes some people, even even pastors of some churches, they just, they just hate it. They don't like that. And it's a shame that that's what's happening here. They go so far as claiming that we shouldn't. And when I say propositional truth, what I'm talking about there is the objective truth of the Bible. They don't want to talk about the objective truth of the Bible. Uh, a lot of people don't like objective truth. would not that a shame? I mean, that gives us some solid places to put our feet when it's objective, absolute truth. And they want to take that away from us. So um, the fact of the matter is doctrine is what powers life. It's what powers life. And so, uh, so your view of profound doctrine is what determines your conviction. How you see doctrine determines what your conviction is, what your passion is. If you have a if you if you don't understand doctrine, and some people uh, haven't studied it out, haven't been taught what doctrines are, what the, the various doctrines, and there's a lot of doctrines, different kinds of doctrines in the Bible. But if we don't let them out, we don't know what they are, how are we going to serve the living God? And so, um, it determines your conviction, and conviction is what makes you do what you do. How you're convicted, uh, what it, not in a bad, like you're being judged, and I don't mean convicted that way. I'm talking about what is your convictions. Every one of us have convictions. This is where I stand. This is what I believe. This is my position on life. Uh, and that motivates you, that your your conviction is driven by your, how you see doctrine, and then that is that drives how you serve. So doctrine is absolutely crucial. It's the structure by of, of of all the immovable facts that you find in the Bible, the divine facts and the realities that you know to be true, you believe to be true and that are operating principles of your life. I mean how do you how do you function as a believer as a Christian? if you don't know what the Bible says. That's why we have disciples. That's why we start at the beginning with people in discipleship, is to lay out some fundamental... You know there's 16 lessons in discipleship. You know that's 16 doctrinal truths. That's really what that is. And so all Scripture is loaded loaded with doctrine. It's everywhere. It's all throughout the Bible. The Bible is propositional truth. It's not an opinion. It's not suggestions. It's truth from God. And so doctrine defines Scripture. Um, Paul told Timothy that doctrine is profitable. He said in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, you guys all, I think everybody here knows this verse, all Scripture is what? Given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. There's a value in doctrine. There's a value in the, in, the, in the Word of God. You know, Psalm chapter 19, which is a great psalm. We won't turn there and read it all, but let me just tell you a few things that it says about the Word of God. It says the Word of God is perfect, it says the Word of God makes us wise. It says the Word of God is right, it's clean, it's pure, and it's sure, and and, and and is surely true. All that said there. So, doctrine reveals the truth of God. It reveals the truth of God and in, in what God really desires to teach us about what He is. Whole Bible, your whole Bible, from Genesis to, to Revelation, is everything that your God wants you to know about Him. It's His, it's his mind, it's His thinking. In fact, Paul talked about that. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of God right here in the Bible. Everything he wants you to know is right there. Um, so we have this, this desire to... Uh, God has this desire to teach us what he is, who he is, and what he has said, and what he will do. But be warned, there's three, there's three problems with destructive, three destructive elements that enter the church when the church doesn't focus on doctrine. this is important three things that happen in a church that doesn't focus on doctrine or even in the life of a a christian first the first there's doctrinal error if you don't pay to pay attention to doctrine there will be errors in your doctrine because there's only one right doctrine and that's what god has given to us in his word so if you're not paying attention you're going to you're going to drift off into some sort of an error the second the second error in the church or in in a believer is apathy towards the holiness and the sovereignty and the righteousness of God. There becomes an apathy about who God is. We, we're like, well, who cares what God is? I mean, you know, God's God, that's okay. He, he built everything. He, he did it all. You know, but that doesn't affect him. So that's, that's a problem. It's apathy towards the holiness, sovereignty, and righteousness of God. And the third thing that happens, which is really a shame, is not knowing doctrine, not paying attention to doctrine, degrades the person of Christ it degrades the person of Christ. And these errors are ignored today in, in, a, in many churches. I read an article, I think it was about six years ago. So, um, it was entitled this. Uh, I think, it, I can't remember the magazine that I, that I found this in, but Jesus didn't care about correct doctrine and neither should we was the title of that article. Uh, how, how, what? What? How did you come up with that kind of a title? I would just, he should have been, whoever wrote that, I don't remember the name of the person right now, I, haven't, I have it in other, other notes, where I got that. This is a crazy concept. Uh, in, 19, in 2020, probably many of you have heard the name Andy Stanley. That's a shame about Andy Stanley, let me just tell you that. This is what he said, church unity is more important than theological correctness. That's what he said at a conference in 2020. Church unity is more important. And when he says church unity, he's not talking about unity in the local church. He's talking about everybody that claims to be a Christian church. All of the, all of the denominations that say, well, we're, we, we follow Christ, whatever they are, whatever the denominations, the unity of all of those churches is more important to Andy Stanley than theological correctness. He also said this in that same... Um, uh, I don't even call it a message, but his 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 presentation. When Christians of various denominations get to heaven, we will all discover we will discover that when it comes to theology, we were all wrong about something. I hope not. I hope I hope, you know if we got the word of God. I mean, I think we have the roadmap to get it to to get to the right place that God wants us to be. Basically, Andy Stanley was neglecting or rejecting the word of God itself because doctrine does matter. You know who it matters to the most? it matters to God so if it matters to God it ought to matter to us again Paul wrote to to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verses 3 and 4 if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and then and to the doctrine which is according to godliness he is proud knowing nothing that's what Andy Stanley knowing nothing uh, but doting about questions doting about questions and strifes of words where it cometh envy strife railings and evil surmisings that's a description the perfect fit for Andy Stanley today now I know his father Charles Stanley was a was an excellent pastor a great great speaker Andy Stanley now I do not remember the name of the church that he pastored but it's a fairly large church and that is the influence he had don't worry about doctrine don't worry about study don't even bring in fact he doesn't even believe in the Bible he says you need not have a Bible he says, I'll tell you what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. You don't need it. And that's how he encourages his own church. It's a shame. It really is a shame. And so we must be found, we must be sound in the faith, not just in generalities. That's it. That? Oh, there we I was saying, is the dad still alive? Yeah, I believe he is. I don't know for sure, but I think he is. So anyway, um, no, so we, need to be, we, need, we need to be sound in the faith, not just in the generalities of what a Christian could be defined as. We must have the same belief in doctrine as somebody who is not. We may. We may have the same beliefs as somebody who is not a Baptist. and that, I mean, that's okay. There's churches that are out there that are not Baptists, in quotes, uh, that have the same doctrinal beliefs that we do. That's fine. But we cannot merge with those who are theologically, doctrinally, not in agreement with us. It's very important that we partner with churches and believers that are like-minded with us. Uh, And so we are very careful. That's why we don't just let anybody come into our church and teach. They have to be of like-minded. That's a very difficult thing sometimes because some people, they sound great when they're preaching, but then when you find out they don't have the same doctrine as as us, it's like, well, I'd I'd be scared to let you stand in front of my, my congregation and I don't know what you would say. And so we have to be careful about those kind of things. And so... So anyway, um, this is what's happening in Corinth. The same thing. Andy Stanley is all over Corinth. The Judaizers were muddying the waters of doctrine, trying to draw the church back into Judaism. That's what they were trying to do. Unfortunately, I don't I don't know what Andy Stanley's purpose is to do to 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 wreak uh, a negative concept of the Bible. It's just like why why would you stand in church in, in a a group of people and pretend you're a pastor of, of a church and you don't believe this book. Why, why waste your time? And unfortunately, why would a lot of people waste their time going and listening to him? So anyway, we're commanded to use doctrine. We're commanded to use doctrine to use it correctly. Titus, a couple places in Titus, chapter, chapter 1, verse 9, says, holding fast the faithful word as, we have, as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. It takes doctrine to be able to minister to people. Not that you have to quote them doctrine and you have to beat it into their head, but you have to know what, where you're coming from to explain to somebody the truth. And the same thing he said in chapter, Titus chapter 2, verse 1, but speak out the things which, which become sound doctrine. I think the Bible is pretty clear. Doctrine is important. And so the greatest need of the church... In the Laodicean age is for sound doctrine, on a realistic level through evangelistic teachers who believe in the doctrine of the Bible. Again, Paul says in Second Timothy chapter one, verse 13, "Hold fast the form of sound words." That would be doctrine, uh, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus." So the word doctrine, just so I make sure we're all on the same page definition-wise. Uh, there's a couple of different ways the word doctrine it can be defined depending on how it's used. It means to receive instruction. It means to at what is heard. And then lastly, it means instruction and discipline that is that is taught. And so uh, you receive doctrine and then I should be teaching doctrine. and And then we take that what is heard and we apply it correctly. So that's where Paul is at here in chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter five of verse Corinthians. I can't talk. First second Corinthians chapter five. So he starts off, he says, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in, in these first few verses because we 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 dealt into this last week, but he said, For we know that it, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and he goes on and he talks about those that contract. And so well, while we dove we drove into this doctrine last week, we're just going to of let me just give you a real summary of what Paul is saying. He wants us to know that while we're alive on this Earth, we occupy a tabernacle, that earthly tabernacle, right that fleshly tabernacle, which is replaced by a body from heaven. When we, we, when we pass off of this earth, when we die, we go from an earthly tabernacle, this physical body, into a heavenly tabernacle. that that he's called a a house made with hands, made without hands, sorry. Uh, And so he wants us to know that. He said in verse 1 that he spoke of the home that we occupy today, and it's that earthly body made for life on earth in our present time. It may not be the greatest body, but it's conditioned for life on the present time, right? Our body is conditioned to to, to serve right now. And in uh, verse 2, he says... um, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. So he's contrasting these two things. Uh, <clears throat> so right now we're contained in an earthly vessel uh, on the earth, but when we, when our, when the body dies, the soul of the, of those who are saved is translated into a new clothing. So his point in all of this, just, and then we'll move on, uh, is that we are destined to go from earthly to heavenly. As he said in 1 Corinthians fifteen, from corruptible to incorruptible and from mortal to immortality. Those are the things that we have coming, looking forward to. And so he talked about that. That was motivation, our strength and confidence for this application of doctrine, knowing that whatever is gonna happen, whatever happens to us, doesn't hurt us. We don't need have we don't need to fear anything because we have a destiny that is eternal. We have a destination that's eternal. So that was the first thing. Our future is set. And then in verses nine to fifteen, he talks about the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. So let's start with verse nine. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. That would be that judgment right there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us receive that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Verse twelve: For we are, we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on your be on our behalf, that ye may be, have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is to you for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead, and that he died for. Am I going to the right place? I think it was fifteen. And that he died for all that we, that they which live not should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again so this judgment this this judgment that we're talking about is actually one of seven judgments in the bible there's actually seven different di- judgments this is one of them and it's it's actually the one that is the least should be the least fearful fearsome or fearful of anybody of any judgment uh, this judgment is mentioned uh, and actually uh, this is how important it is it's mentioned three different places aside from this passage here it's mentioned three different times it's mentioned in 1st Corinthians chapter 3 verses 11 to 15 it's mentioned in 1st Corinthians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 and then Paul also spoke about it in Romans chapter 14 so while most judgment, the other six judgments that are, that are in the Bible uh, while they're a penal judgment they're, um, they're related to the punishment of the offenders The judgment seat of Christ is a parental, parent judgment. It's judgment of the Father. It's done out of the love of the Father. So it's it's not penal. There's not a punishment involved in... And that's what's cool about the judgment seat of Christ. There is no punishment. There's rewards and so on and lack of rewards and so on. But there's no punishment from from the judgment seat of Christ. There are judgments. There are punishments from the others, unfortunately. And so... Um, this is a judgment that's only limited to the the believer. Uh, This is an exclusive judgment. The body of believers are the only people that go before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 9 speaks of what we we call the measure of judgment. In verse 9 again it said, um, talks about being accepted of him. And so it's our duty to serve the Lord in ministry, but we don't labor in order to be saved. There's no save. There's no salvation in what you serve. I know, I know. There's a lot of lot of teaching out there floating around in, in all kinds of different places. You know, God weighs your your good and your bad on a, on a scale, and whatever it tips, that's how you. That, that that's not this. That is not what's happening here. It's not. Uh, if 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 you're good outweighs your bad, you get to go to heaven. If you're out, if you're bad outweighs your good, you don't. You go to hell. That's not this that's not what's going on here this, this is totally separate from that and so um, we labor as believers because it pleases the father, that's the whole bottom line here we, this judgment is about how pleasing our is our labor What what, what is it, is it accepted of, of God so it's our duty to serve the Lord in ministry but we don't labor in order to be saved we labor because we are already saved and it is our desire that we are accepted of him according to verse 9 So we labor as believers because it pleases the Father. That's why we do it. That judgment is about pleasing Him. John chapter 8, verse 29, I mentioned this last week. He that sent me is is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always choose things that please Him. So labor here means, this idea of labor means to be ambitious, to strive to uh, to please out of a love for and a sense of honor in pleasing who you're laboring for. We labor, we labor for God because we love God. I mean, just think about it in your own family, your own household. You serve your family members because you love them, because you care for them. They serve you because they love you. At least that's the way it ought to be. And it's not always that way, I know. Especially when kids are young, they don't want to do anything. But, but that's the whole point, is, is serving out of a love for, for, uh, for God. Another way we could talk about this would be a holy ambition. Uh, a holy ambition Do, what is our ambition we want to please God the Father that's what our holy ambition ought to be then notice he says in verse 10 again as we were looking at that verse 10 he says But well, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone will receive the things done in his body so the intent of the judgment is found here the issue of this judgment is serious but it's not for punishment it's not a punishment it's just checking you. what have you done why have you done it First, we need to know that this judgment is an accounting of our behavior, both good and bad, while in our earthly bodies, while we're in, that, in that, uh, that earthly body. Second, it's an accounting of how we used our body, that earthly one, which is what is meant by the phrase, according to that he hath done. So, you're being judged according to that you have done. So, we're held accountable for what we have done with our time, our talents, our gifts, and our influences. And we must appear and show openly that we will be measured regarding our service to the Lord. And Paul says it this way again. He said to the church of Ephesus, you all remember this verse, right? Five, chapter 5, verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. How are you redeeming the time? What are you doing to redeem that time? What time? The time that you have left on the earth, redeem it for the profit for God. And he said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward them with that or without, redeeming the time. So this accounting is clear. We're not going to take the time to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15, where it really kind of details the, the, the judgment. In verse 3, it says that we are built, um, what we have built with our body. A question, can we classify our labor as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble? Where do we classify our work? So every one, every one of our works will be made manifest. Therefore, we must not waste time and energy on frivolous things that do not bring glory to the to the Lord. Again, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, knowing that the Lord, that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of inheritance for you serve the, the Lord Christ. So verse 11 also, the, um, as we're continuing on here, the judgment seat of Christ reminds us that there's... Notice, this is kind of... I think this is where it throws some people off. Verse 13... Not verse 13. Where am I looking at? I lost my place. Sorry. It talks about the terror of the Lord. 11. Hmm? 11? Okay. Uh, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. So, um, <clears throat> the terror of the Lord is us recognizing, and this is, the, the, okay, so it's not terror of the judge. We're not terrorized. We're not fearful of the actual disjudgment because no, not, it's not a penal judgment. There's not a, there's not a punishment in this judgment. Uh, but there are some things that we need to be fearful of. The terror of the, of the Lord, that is us recognizing that the lost do not have a chance to go to this, term, this judgment. That is, that is what we should fear. Basically, we fear for them. We fear for them. We fear because we know what's going to happen to them. If, if they don't go to this judgment... They will go to one of the punishment judgments, and that ought to scare us, and that ought to motivate us to serve to get people away from the potential of punishment judgment and bring them into a parental judgment, so that they would have eternal life and have a body that will that will uh, live in, live for eternity, that body that's made in heaven. That's 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 the fear that this had. That's what Paul Paul was concerned. The whole point of this, Paul bringing us bringing up this, the judgment seat of Christ. It is not not to scare us, but to point us that some people aren't going to be there in that autumn. That we should just have a broken heart over those people that are not going to be there. They are going to miss out on the blessings that come from this parental judgment. You know why? Because it says, I think may I had verse 11 written here. But anyway, flip back to 1 Corinthians for just a moment, chapter 3. verse 15 if any man's work shall be burned if any man's work the type of work whatever that work is if it's it's burned he shall suffer loss not punishment but loss but he himself shall be saved yet so is by fire some people teach that that terror of the Lord there that's being spoken of in 2nd Corinthians is is that you're going to that you're not going to get saved that you'll lose your salvation if you didn't work the right works and Paul is saying, there is no terror of the Lord like that. That's not, that's not the case. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You drop down to verse 21. Just look at verse 21. we We'll bring we'll, this, I told you before when we first started this, that sometimes the complexities of Paul's thought pattern, sometimes he'll say something and then he'll jump right to another topic then he'll come back to that topic. So that's what's happening right here. Verse 25, 21, uh, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says... For he hath made he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so uh, the terror of the Lord is not the fear of judgment. It is the fear that those who are in the world today have no chance to come before that judgment seat. And we should be afraid for the lost and do something about their condition. And this is not the same thing as God doesn't give us the spirit of fear. It's not that. Um, Instead, it is seeing the train wreck coming and being so concerned that we do two things. There's two things that he says that we should do. We persuade the lost, and, we, and we, we, we witness of God. That's what we should be doing. So in response to the Judaizers, Paul kind of reminds the church again about the Judaizers. He encourages the church to recognize that Paul himself is not about eternal or personal reward. He just wants people to be saved, and that church is what you should want to do as well. We should all want that to happen, that people people get saved. And then in verse twelve, he points back again. We're going back up to verse twelve now. He points back again to the Judaizers again. For we commend not ourselves upon you or unto you, but give you occasion to glory glory on your behalf that you should have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance. Giving an answer to who? The ones that, the Judaizers who who are Seeking their own glory their, instead of the glory of God so so we have two, we have two doctrines so far that Paul is can draw strength out of first off we have a we have a destination we have an eternal body that we can look forward to never have to fear uh, death we will not ever die once we have that body for sure will we live in eternity and then uh, our judgment is not a not a punishment judgment our judge, our judgment is a parental judgment what have you done for me? And are you, doing, are you doing things right? And then we have a third doctrine in verses 15 to 17. This is kind of a short one. Uh, this was the doctrine of the vastness of the finished work of Christ. Verse 15, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth known, when we know man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so Paul was motivated by the wide-ranging application of the death of Christ. I mean, this ought to motivate us as well. How many people did Christ die for? All the world. That ought to motivate us to serve, to reach all the world. I mean, if, if he died for all the world, then he loved all the world. And so he, he's trying to minister to all the world... He's trying to reach all the world, he's trying to reconcile all the world, and we should be a part of that as well. If you look at verse 19, it's not part of this passage, but in verse 19, he goes on and he says, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Is the issue is reconciliation, issue, which we'll get to in just a moment. And so, uh, verse nineteen tells us that God, through Christ, was desiring to reconcile all men to Himself through Christ. Through, and Christ died on the cross, that all should have an opportunity to be saved. So this is a great truth. Nobody is excluded from salvation. All can claim. All who, all are called to claim the death and resurrection of Christ for themselves. Everybody has that opportunity. May, they may not understand that, but that's where we come in. We have to explain this doctrine to people that Christ died for every person on the earth, not just the Baptists, not just uh, the Missourians, not just, you know, whatever category we want to call it, lump of people in. He died for everybody. He died for the uh, Iranians. He died for the, the, uh, the Muslims. He died for the Buddhists. He died for everybody, and they need to be saved. That's hard for us sometimes because we want to separate all of that. But God doesn't separate it. He died for every person. He wants to reconcile all to himself. So many lost are not aware of this. They're not even aware of this. They're not even aware that they're lost. Uh, they're probably familiar with John 3.16. They're just not familiar with the application. I think everybody in the world, at least in the United States, you know, probably knows John 3.16. But they don't know what it means. And, and even if they do, they go to some people and they'll get a they'll get the wrong explanation because those people don't know their doctrine either. So... Um, verse 14 if one died for all then all were needed to be rescued because they were, because all were dead that's what he's talking about in verse 14 but this death was not just a death it was also an invitation to minister this great truth to others verse 17 we're no longer the same person old right? things are passed away we'll all, we'll all become new so we're, not, we're no longer the same person that we were we have been changed in body and in spirit and our feelings towards others have changed they should have changed our feelings towards others should change uh, now we have an entirely new view of the people of ourselves of christ and so on uh, because we have we're new creatures and we want them to be new creatures as well so the vastness of the love of god for the world through his son which we are now as we are all now a son as well remember john chapter 1 verse 12 says we had we had the power to become a son of god so everybody has that same power. They have they have access to it. We should just help them. And then he gets into the last one, the last uh, doctrine he mentions, starting in verse sixteen to twenty one. He's bringing all of this stuff home. He's tying it all together now. He, in chapter five, verses sixteen to twenty one. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh; yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, I'm. I'll go ahead and keep reading that. I've already read it. But therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God uh, was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God, for He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So I would call this the, this is you get right down to it. Everything by the time He gets to the end of all of this stuff, this was the doctrine of the ministry of reconciliation. So we have a, We have this doctrine here, and we have this ministry that God has given to us. Um, That's probably more more accurate way to say it is this doctrine is that God has given you a ministry. God has given you everyone. Everyone of us a ministry. Christ wants everyone, and He died for all. We've already talked about that. All may be saved. Now He desires to reconcile them and draw them, and draw you, and draw you into service to Him. Notice verse fourteen. There's a word in verse fourteen really, that really kind of brings it all together. Where did my first fourteen go? Excuse my page again. But the love of Christ constraineth us. So the love of Christ—that word "constrained." Um, we are constrained to serve because He did. He died for all, wanting all to be saved. So this truth here that we're talking about, laid out by Paul, starting back on verse 16, what I would call—what I would call your call. This is your call. Uh, you, you know, you want to. Everybody got called to salvation. This is called to service. This, this right here, this doctrine. Everybody's been called to serve. There's not a Christian in the world that's not been called to serve because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 11, he says, For the Son of God came to save that which is lost, and he intends us to help him do that. So to be constrained is to be held together while pressing on. Uh, We are not just held together, we are bound to Christ through the love that he has for us and the love he has for the world demonstrated by his death. So we're bound, we're constrained by Christ and his sacrifice. More specifically in verse 18, we are given what he said, what he calls verse 18, a ministry of reconciliation. So you, can, you were constrained to the ministry of reconciliation through Christ, and your role then is an ambassador, verse 20. So you have a title, actually. You're not an, you're not a, you're not an apostle, you're, you're a Christian for sure, but you have a role. Your role then would be the title of ambassador, is what he says in verse 20 now and then we are ambassadors for Christ as though Christ, God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God so you have, a, you have the role of an ambassador to be a spokesman and then if, back in verse 18 again though, what he did was really cool what he did in verse 18 he gave us, he wraps it all up he calls it the ministry of reconciliation but then he gave us in verse 19 he gave us the tool we need so you're, you've been given a ministry of reconciliation but notice when verse at the end of verse 19 what has he committed to you? He's committed to you the word of reconciliation. This is how you have the power, the strength, the tool that you need to minister to people. Is uh, You've been constrained because of the death of Christ loving the whole world. So you've been constrained to be a part of the region of the world and reconciling the world. And you've been given a role, the ambassador. You have a job uh, to serve in, as the minister of reconciliation. Then you've been given the tool. Every one of us have this tool. We have the same tool. This tool is the Bible, the word of God. The word of reconciliation. Uh, I think it's really kind of neat. We have the ministry of reconciliation and the tool of word of reconciliation and we're constrained to Christ to serve, to reach the lost. And Paul says, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm constrained. And so are you, by the way, church. And that's what that's what he's talking about. So, um, yeah, we're going to go ahead and end here. So that's, uh, next next week, Jeremy, are you, are you on board next week, right? Okay, so uh, we have a wedding to go to out uh, in western Kansas, or both uh, nephews, or niece's son is getting married, so we're going to go out there for that. Um, we won't be back on Sunday, but uh, Jeremy will pick up the slack. And so, uh, anyway, let's pray, and uh, we'll be out of here. Uh, we got main service. Brian Calloway, by the way, is our main speaker this morning. Uh, Brian Calloway is a missionary in Zambia. Uh, he's now back, uh, and uh, so we're looking forward to hearing from him. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this passage, Lord. It really lays out uh, the, uh, the, the expectation that you have for us to serve you in ministry, to reach the lost, because you died for the lost. And we praise you, Father, that you even trust us to do such a thing. Help us to be strengthened in the word of reconciliation, the tool that you've given us, and uh, teach us, Father, all the time how to, how to uh, apply doctrine in different aspects of our life and other people's lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.